We're going to study tonight a group of tshuvas on the topic of alter, on the topic of alternative medicine. We discussed some of the some of these tshuvas. Uh, we encountered them on a previous class. We'll, we'll we'll focus on other ones, and there is actually an interesting Pesach connection to all this as well. We'll study tshuvas on the topic of hypnosis, to which there is no particular Pesach connection, as well as homeopathy which is where we're going to encounter a Pesach connection. So hypnosis is it, it, it's famous in the popular imagination as a means by which you can manipulate someone to do things, often nefarious, uh, for nefarious purposes. It's also used, it's also used by legitimate uh, medical practitioners uh, to, to, to heal, to treat, to provide therapy. When you do that, it's called hypnotherapy. We have a close family friend who, who's, a, who's a doctor of psychology who, practice, who, who's, who, who, believe, who believes that hypnosis is a useful tool for, uh, for, for, can be a useful tool for treating certain conditions. So they asked Moshe Feinstein, Chuvan Igris Moshe, whether hypnosis is a permitted practice for Jews, meaning hypnotherapy, practicing it for, as a form of therapy. So Ramosha that says he consulted with people familiar with hypnosis, hypnotism he calls it. Also, in a rather interesting uh, in a rather interesting point, he says he also consulted with Rav Henkin, his great rabbinic colleague in New York. It, it, it's unusual for a Moshe, I believe, to to consult other Rabbana when he was asked halachic questions. You can go through Igris Moshe. I think Ramosha was a famously independent posik. He believed ideologically he was uh, he, he was certainly not uh, not arrogant. Ramosha was extremely humble, but Ramosha believed very strongly in halachic independence, in the in, in the right and the prerogative and the duty of a posik to form his own conclusions. Ramosha often does not quote the literature of the Achronim on the topic. He on, at hand he, he quotes you know, major early Achronim, but then goes his own way. So remarkably here, perhaps because hypnosis is something out of the ordinary, it's not. Uh, it just, it just, just it, it's a, it's a, it's a set of realia which are different from what the posik typically encounters. For whatever the reason, he says he consulted Rav Hankin on this, and he writes the his conclusion as a joint conclusion of him and Rav Hankin. He says, We don't think there's anything halachically problematic with hypnosis. Why? So he explains well, why should there be. He says we don't think it's an Indian of kishuf. We don't think there's any. Hypnosis can sound to an outsider very magical. It's somehow it's a way of imposing your will, the power of suggestion, getting other people to do what you want. It's not really Kishif, he says. It's not Kishif. Indian, Indian TV, he says. It's a, it's a natural thing. Some people, he says, Yesh koach le'ezan Hashim. Some people have some kind of power, he says. L'hashpi al anashim, They can influence those of weak will, weak uh, of weak uh, nervous systems, that they can, they, they won't know what's going on. They can, they can be in a sense of uh, of uh, oblivion. He says it's a, it's a it's a scientific phenomenon, even though it sounds very mysterious, even occult to an outsider. But it's apparently it's a scientific thing. He says so. It's not kishuf. So Ramosha dispenses with the whole issue of kishuf of darchi amori of you know, all the possible surim with uh, involved in, in in practicing the occult. He's saying hypnosis is not occult. Hypnosis is Hypnosis is a uh, is is a legitimate scientific phenomenon, 
And the truth is, I, 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 my, my, my impression is that it's not entirely clear it, that's, that scientists are not entirely clear on what hypnosis uh, actually is and how it works. Wikipedia's hypnosis entry, for example, states that there are competing theories explaining hypnosis and related phenomena, meaning that they can't even agree on how it works. Apparently there's enough evidence that it works. It's, it's, it's a medically legitimate thing, but there's a lot we don't understand about the mind, and uh, there are different types of uh, different types of theories, whether it's a genuinely altered state of the mind, like a trance, or whether it's a placebo effect, or uh, imaginative role enactment, or other types of theories. So, so we don't. So it's not entirely clear how it works, but it, whatever it is, it's believed to be a a legitimate scientific discipline, a legitimate phenomenon, and not kishuf, not akot. As we've discussed previously, as we'll discuss in more detail soon, it's it's very hard, very very hard epistemologically, both in terms of science and in terms of halacha to decide what is occult and what is, uh, and what, and what is uh, natural. You can say anything you understand is science, anything you don't understand is occult, but some people claim to understand the occult and some people don't understand science. So it, it, it's very hard to give an, an objective definition for uh, what, is, what is normal and what is paranormal, what is science and what is, and what is beyond science. Obviously, you could take the, the maximal, de- the maximalist definition and say anything that's real is science, and anything that's not real is is not science. But then, many many Rishonim and Achronim did believe that magic and the paranormal are real, in which case they would be science as well. So it's very hard. It's very hard to give a working definition of what is science and what is not science. But Ramosha says very briefly. He says he and Rav Hankin felt that hypnosis is a natural, natural and uh, not paranormal phenomenon, and therefore it's not, it does not fall under the prohibitions of Kishif. Nevertheless, Ramosha says there are still a couple of potential problems with hypnosis. He says, Yesh Lachush, if, if you're giving a physician, if you're giving a, a therapist power over you, the power of suggestion, he can get you to do things that you might not normally do, that you can somehow lose the power to resist, to lose your inhibitions. If, 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 you believe, if, if the situation is such that the therapist can get you to do things whatever he wants you to do, he might tell you to do a Dabar Aster, do something that's prohibited, to do an Avera. And you yourself will not be absolved. You can't claim, well, I was an Onus, because I was in a hypnotic trance. Ramosha says, no, since you willingly submitted to the hypnosis, contrary to some uh, science fiction and fantastic literature, you can't hypnotize somebody against his will. You can't suddenly you know, wave your watch in front of his face and say you're getting sleepy and, and hypnotize him if he's not cooperating. So since you yourself have to submit to the hypnosis and you're aware of the possibility that you can be manipulated while in a state of hypnosis, you cannot be considered an onus, you cannot be considered uh, uh, to, to have sinned against your will. He brings a tosis in the name of the Yushalmi, who makes this point in a, in a Chosh and Mishpat context, in a civil law context. The, the, the context over there is, if someone, the context over there is, if someone goes to sleep near some property of somebody else. And in his sleep, he turns over, he thrashes around, and he breaks the other person's property. So can he say, I'm an onus, it's not my fault, while I'm sleeping, I couldn't control myself? It's true, while you're sleeping, you can't control yourself, but you're chayev anyway, and and Tosis Tosis brings you a I think, that says, you're chayev because who asked you to go to sleep? By, By choosing to go to sleep in such a situation, you're responsible. As we've discussed in the context of, of, uh, Torts of, of injuries committed while drunk. You can't say I shouldn't be chayev for crashing into your car while I was drunk because I was drunk and it's not my fault. 
you shouldn't have gotten drunk. And, uh, and the, the law and halacha hold you responsible for putting yourself in a situation. I, I, I can't speak exactly for the legal doctrine involved. The way halacha looks at it is, even if you get so drunk that you are literally not in control of your actions, you're, you're drunk, uh, you're shikar as lot, you're completely out of control and not responsible for your actions, nevertheless, you are responsible for putting yourself in a state of such drunkenness. And, and at least in a, in a Chosh Mishpat context, you're chayev. And therefore, Moshe says, when it, comes to, when it comes to being responsible for things that, you, things that you do in obedience to hypnotic suggestions, you're going to be chayev for putting yourself into that situation. The truth is, the halacha does say that if a person commits an avera while he's drunk, shalot, he actually is putter. He doesn't get chayev misa and beis, and he doesn't get malchus. So we do consider him an onus to some extent. So the, the, the halach is Yerchayev in a Chosh Mishpat context, Yerchayev in a civil law context, but you're putter from, uh, from Onshim. So I'm not sure why, I'm, I'm not actually sure, I'd have to look up uh, the Yushalmi and the, and the Tosas that he brings. I'm not actually sure why Ramosha says that, that you're not an onus. If we see that with regard to, regard to the onus of Baston, you are considered an onus. Perhaps even there, you're only putter in Baston, but you still have moral culpability. Be that as it may, Ramosha says... If you willingly enter into a hypnotic trance and you're aware that you can be manipulated in that context to do things that are against the Torah, you cannot consider yourself an onus, and therefore that itself is enough of a reason to avoid hypnosis when the hypnosis is being performed by someone you can't trust, someone who doesn't keep the Torah and you can't trust, you don't know what it'll tell you to do. However, if it's in a situation where that's not a concern, for example, a, a rofe, a, a physician, a therapist who's shomer Torah, or any other context where, where there's no reason, there's no reason to believe, there's no, re, there's no, there's no, there's no reason for concern that there'll be a bitzel of any mitzvah. Then he says he and Rafenkin they do not believe there's any iser involved in hypnosis. Nevertheless, Ramosha concludes in his in his last paragraph there is still one final issue involved, and that is zilzul ba'atzmo, self degradation, demeaning oneself. Uh, Acting in a way that's, uh, that that lack dignity, that lacks self-respect, that itself is somewhat prohibited. He says, "We find uh, someone who's ochel b'shuk, someone who eats in public, who eats in the street. That's considered disgraceful, uncivilized behavior. At least it was in Talmudic times. And you're pasulaedus. It doesn't use the word aser, but if you're pasulaedus, you, you're you're ineligible to testify because if you don't if you don't treat yourself with even a modicum of respect, we, we don't believe you'll be careful about." giving true testimony, and we, we don't trust you anymore. <coughs> the same thing applies to other other types of people who hold themselves in a disgraceful way. So you see, Ramosha says, there is a certain level of isser in not treating yourself with respect. Says Ramosha, agreeing to hypnosis is a tremendous zilzal begufo. Ramosha takes for granted that giving up control, submitting yourself to the control of another is a zilzal begufo, is a self-degradation, and therefore that itself is a reason not to do hypnosis. However, he says, if that's the only iser, that's not a strict black and white iser, it's just a general uh, disapproval of the Torah, it's not strictly iser, and therefore, he says, if you're doing it for therapeutic reasons, and there's no real alternative, then he says it is mutter. Ramosha brings Talmudic precedent for that, the things which are normally considered disgraceful, and should be avoided, but their mutter, if they're not strictly usher, eating a ham sandwich is usher, even if it's for, for therapy, unless it's, unless it's a pikoach nefesh. But something which is simply disgraceful is not strictly usher, you normally shouldn't do it, but if you have no choice, if it's necessary for therapy and you have no choice, 
then it is mutter. Even cholashein basakana, you're not literally in danger of your life. It is still mutter if it's for a genuine therapeutic need and there's no there's no good alternative. Therefore, he says here too, hypnosis for refua, hypnotherapy, even if it's not cholashein basakana. He says uh, it's mutter and you're allowed to practice hypnosis. So that's from Moshe's Chuva, which he said, which he issued apparently in consultation with Rav Henkin on the subject of hypnosis. Turning to another tshuva of Ramosha on alternative medicine, and that is on the far more controversial topic of homeopathy. Homeopathy is a form of alternative medicine. It is, uh, it, it is one that is almost universally regarded in the scientific community today as pseudoscience, as, as bunk, as baloney. It's, uh, it goes back quite a while. It goes back, uh, goes back a couple of centuries. It goes back to 1796, so more than two centuries ago. Homeopathy involves a set of beliefs. The, the rationales have evolved a little bit over time, but it involves the belief that like, like, cures like, similia, similibus, curanter, like, cures like, that the... That the, that, that the same substance that causes illness or, or damage or disease can also cure the illness, or the illness or disease. So they believe that if someone is suffering from poison or from some uh, noxious agent, you give him more of it to cure him, not in the same dose as the, as the, as the bad dose, because that, that obviously even they accept doesn't work, but you give very, very small amounts of it, diluted, diluted over and over, repeatedly diluted, and, and that trace amount of the, of the toxic substance is supposed to cure what ails the person. The dilutions are, are ridiculously uh, diluted to the point that it's uh, one and you know, 30 zeros of, uh, of the active ingredient to the diluent, as they call it. People have given all kinds of, people have given all kinds of amusing mishalom for how, how it can possibly work. That, uh, for example, they, they use a dilution called sometimes called 30C. So 30C is one in, uh, is one in uh, 10 to 60 molecules of water, which would mean, a, which would mean you need a container that's, uh, 30, th- that, that's 30 billion times the size of the earth to have, uh, to have a single molecule of the original substance, and so on. They, 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 they give all kinds of mishalom like that, to, that, that, the, that the amount of dilution is so... Uh, is, is so tiny, is so, is, is so impossibly small that there is no possible scientific, uh, there's no sensible scientific mechanism by which such a, most homeopathic preparations under the laws of physics and chemistry that we know aren't going to have even a single, mole- some of them won't even have a single molecule of the original substance, some of them might have a single molecule, but so little of it, so, so, such a little amount, it can't possibly have any effect. So homeopathy has been controversial for centuries, particularly in the last several decades, and the, and, 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 the, and the general conclusion today, certainly of the establishment science, international bodies, governmental bodies, NGOs, is that, is that homeopathy is simply false, is simply uh, A, ineffective, not generally harmful, there's generally so little of any active ingredient that it's not going to be har- not going to be harmful, but that the effectiveness is uh, is zero, aside from placebo effect or other things like that, and therefore it is worthless. Those there are some studies that show that homeopathy works. 
there are studies that show anything works. Uh, a, 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 study, a study shows, as they point out, a study can show that there's some scientific benefit to something. They typically use uh, a cutoff of 5% significance. If the odds of the results being by chance is less than, less than 5%, which means if you do 20 studies, even if there's no statistical result, you should expect a result shown in one of 20 papers. And publication bias, people tend to, to publish the papers that show results. So there, there are always going to be a few studies that show effectiveness, but the, but the overwhelming consensus of meta-analyses of good studies is that there is no effect, there is no plausible scientific theory that can explain why there would be any result. And so therefore, the, the overwhelming consensus of the, of the scientific community is that there is no such thing, that homeopathy is simply false. Nevertheless, there are certainly people who believe it, even today, and we have chuvos from the we have we we have we have we have chuvos from the from several decades ago where, where homeopathy was was experiencing a resurgence, particularly in the particularly in the in the seventies and eighties where alternative medicine in general was popular in the seventies. So we have various chuvos by great postkim discussing whether homeopathy was permitted or not. There are two questions. One question is the one we just discussed, whether Kishuf and whether there's any issue of are, are occult practices permitted in general or not. The second question is, assuming that there are non-kosher ingredients in these homeopathic preparations, is it mutter? Now in certain cases, certainly if it's cholashi we basakana, we, we're willing to allow the consumption of non-kosher ingredients to save a life. Even in the case of Cholosheim Bosakana, <clears throat> if, if life is not at stake, we have there, there's some basis for leniency. For for Chola, we allow certain things that we wouldn't allow for uh, normally. When, when you go through the Pesach list of drugs and other things, there, there are always going to be certain cases where there are leniencies for Chola. So the question is, even if the homeopathic preparations do include some type of non-kosher ingredient, are they mutter all year round? Are they mutter on Pesach? There was alcohol involved, which might have been uh, non-kosher, al- non-kosher or non-kosher for Passover alcohol. Are we allowed to use the? Are we allowed to use these homeopathic preparations all year round and on Pesach? So this question was put to Ramosha, Ramosha Feinstein, and somewhat unusually, Rabbi Moshe David Tenler, Ramosha's son-in-law, <coughs> penned a response. It, he says it was dictated to him. It was dictated to him by, by his father-in-law, Ramosha Feinstein. Um, why Ramosha didn't publish this tshuva himself, we'll see. Rabbi Tenler explains, I think, why Ramosha didn't want to do that. But th- this is the tshuva. The, the, this this letter was published in the journal, in the journal Hamar, a rabbinic journal in the U.S. several decades ago. So they published a letter along with the let, uh, other letters by the. By, by other hachamim involved, including the including the including the Shoel, who, who the, the Shoel was a Rabbi Chaim Rosenberg, a rabbi in Antwerp in Belgium. So Rabbi Taylor says, my father-in-law Ramosha Feinstein requested that I inform you he does not want to get involved in your shaila. He does not want to address the interesting halachic questions in your shaila, despite the fact he says that there are nikudot halachdiot hamanyanot. There are interesting halachic points in your question. Fascinating question. The halacha is, if you have an iser that's mixed into heter, and the ratio is one in a hundred, or one in a thousand, you have a, you have a candy bar that has a tiny, tiny amount of lard. 
So that's technically mutter. As long as the lard is less than 1 in 60, that's mutter. Certain exceptions, but that's mutter. However, the halacha is, you're not allowed to mevatel iser lechatchila. You're not allowed to deliberately introduce even small amounts of iser into heter with, with the intent of relying on bitl. That's not allowed. But the avid, if it got mixed in, you're, like, you're the, 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 the proverbial case where uh, a bit of milk fell into the chicken soup, but the avid, it's mutter. But lechatchila, you're not allowed to introduce uh, the, the iser into the heter, the milk into the meat. So homeopathy involves all kinds of dilutions. Is that a question? So if, you, if, you, if you dilute an iser ingredient, I assume that's what he was saying, is that a considered bitzel iser lechatchila? The chametz of alcohol, alcohol can be produced from grain, can be a question of chametz. So Rabbi Rosenberg had apparently raised various technical halacha questions with Ramosha. Rabbi Tendler says, Ramosha told him he does not want to address these halachic questions. Why not? He says, because homeopathic therapies cannot be considered refua, beduka, or manusa, cannot be considered reliable, empirically uh, demonstrated remedies. Empirically, these types of remedies, proper remedies, empirical, scientific remedies, people are allowed to use without violating the will of Hashem. However, he says, a, a theory of medicine, a theory of therapy, which he calls Shemigane Hasbara Sichlatanit, Rationalit, a, a theory which is which is explicitly <coughs> anti-rational, that disparages rational thought and and intellectual thought. It brings to belief in nonsense and it uh, and, and, and it and it leads to danger to, to be influenced by foreign worship and belief in occult things, he says, and to a denial of the the orderly nature of the world, which Hashem Yisbarach set up, he says, he says fundamentally the belief in in in, in irrational things, belief in nonsense, is is wrong. It's against the will of God. It can lead to uh, can lead to foreign forms of worship and to the denial of the order of the world. Ramosha says, since I do not wish to be involved in such doctrines. Ramosha says he does not want to associate with such pernicious doctrines. Therefore, he did not. Ramosha declines to get involved in the interest in the admittedly interesting halachic aspects of your question. Again, why Ramosha couldn't write this himself? That I decline to engage in the halachic aspects of your question because I don't want to give my imprimatur to unscientific, anti-rational therapeutic doctrines. I don't know, but this is what this is what Rabbi Tendler published in Hamar. This is what he says, Ramosha. Ramosha. Uh, this is what, what Ramosha dictated to uh, to him. He uh, the the editor the editor of Hamar was was a little skeptical. He writes Divrei Harav Tendler Tamuhim. He writes like a Balmuser, not like a Balhora. He says it's a halachic matter. What are you telling me? Uh, philosophy and doctrines and so on. And in particular, he says the he says to, to attribute such language, such such uh, such 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 argumentation to Ramosha. Ramosha always was the quintessential isha halacha. Ramosha always writes like an Omen ha'ora. He doesn't write with these kinds in halachic manner. Ramosha doesn't write with these types of Musar arguments. He says Ratzon Hashem. He says you know It's our job to uh, it's our job to. Uh, uh, you know, to do the best we can with uh, with with in, in the world we find ourselves, he says. He says you're talking about how belief in unscientific things leads to a rejection of, uh, of God and an embrace of foreign worship. He says, in, in college is worse. He says, in college, the free thinking, the 
the, the evolution and the development of the world and the universe, with like the clockwork universe, he says, that's much worse, he says, that's the... That, that you're not worried about is, is, is the scientific establishment doesn't lead to the denial of God's world, but but taking a homeopathic remedy is going to destroy your amuna. Anyway, so people have challenged that Ramosha wrote that Ramosha really wrote this, or that uh, they don't understand this language of Ramosha. But this is what Ramosha is said to have told. This is what Ray Tandler says Ramosha told him that homeopathy is prohibited on the grounds that that, that he doesn't want to get involved in homeopathy because it is fundamentally anti-rationalist and anti-scientific, and such attitudes are wrong and problematic for, uh, for Jews. Incidentally, I love to quote in this context a tshuva of Rav Asher Weiss. Rav Asher Weiss was asked, not about homeopathy, but about, but about different types of, uh, other types of alternative medicine. They asked him about refuah uh, ha-mashlima, complementary medicine. The Shitas Moach Echad, the one brain uh, doctrine, uh, kinesi- kinesiology, EFT. That he says different types of alternative medicines. He says, he says the question was again, are they are they prohibited on, on the grounds of Darchei Amuri, the grounds of uh, of occult occult pagan practices? Rav Asher says you didn't ask me about uh, you didn't ask me if, you, if, if if I think they're worth anything or if how effective they are. I personally, Rav Asher Weiss says, thinks that most of these things the, the, that are popular among the masses are divrei shtus v'havel, are nonsense and foolishness, he says. However, says Rav Asher, the Torah does not prohibit people from being stupid. So therefore, he says, they're not prohibited. I think they're stupid, he says, but the Torah does not prohibit stupidity. This is, of course, in contrast, I always like to say, to the famous story they tell about Rav Salavechik. They asked him about, I think it was about bowing down uh, when, when practicing martial arts, about bowing down to the sensei or bowing, da- bowing down to one's opponent, they asked him, is this permitted? Is this a question of Avodah So Ramosha says, it's, uh, sorry, Rav, 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 Rav Salvechik said, it's not uh, Oster, it's not Avodah but it's stupid. According to one Nusuch of the story or of a similar story, he said, it's Oster because it's stupid. But uh, yeah, so, so there, there are two nishos. I mean, one version he said it's, it's, it's not Asr, but it's stupid. And one version he said it's, not, it's Asr because it's stupid. Rav Asher takes the position that it's not Asr to be stupid. So even though he thinks that, uh, that these types of alternative, alternative medicine are, are foolish, he says, and nonsense, but it's not Asr to be foolish, he says. So you want to know if they're Asr or they're not Asr. But Rav Moshe, according to the according to the tshuva, according to what, what Rav Tendler says, Rav Moshe dictated to him, Ramosha's position was that these things are against the Torah. They're, 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 they're against the Ratzon Hashem, he says. And the, they, they lead to grave problems. And, and because they're not scientific, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not empirically uh, correct, he says. They, they, they're, they're, they're theologically dangerous, and therefore Ramosha does not use the word Oster, but he says he doesn't want to get involved in, the, in these questions to the extent that he refuses to engage the halachic questions behind them. There were several other postkim at the time who were also consulted, some, some by the same, uh, by, by this same rabbi, this rabbi Rosenberg of Antwerp. He wrote to several other postkim, including Rav, including Rav Shmuel Vosner. The, this Rav Rosenberg, he provided copies of Ramosha's response to Ramanasha Klein. Ramanasha Klein, I don't have the tshuva in the handouts, but he strongly rejected Ramosha's position, and he said there's no basis to prohibit homeopathy. Rabbi Rosenberg also wrote to the Shevet Alevi, Shmuel Vosner, about the Kashrus question. 
Rav Ozner deals primarily with the Kashrus questions. Rav Ozner does, does engage the Kashrus questions, and his analysis is quite interesting. The, the way Rav Ozner sets up the question is that there is an extensive, a lively and, a lively and interesting halachic discussion about whether we treat paranormal remedies, remedies b'derech skula, not b'derech ateva, what is their place in halacha? Do, do we treat them the same, assuming that they're permitted, do we treat them the same as ordinary remedies or not? Specifically, do we allow the, the, the flouting of isurim, let's say for a cholash yesh for fuas gulas? This goes back to the Talmud, to the Mishnah. The Mishnah, the Mishnah discusses whether they used to eat the, they, they used to give someone who was bitten by a mad dog, a rabid dog maybe, they used to give him the liver of the dog to eat, which is, which is A, a non-kosher animal, and uh, it says you can even give it to Mani Yom Kippur, we can allow the fast, we can allow to eat, you have to fast, because it was considered pikuach nefesh. So, so the, 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 that, that's actually a machlokas tanaim, whether you're allowed to do that, are you allowed to, are you allowed to, do we override these yisurim of eating non-kosher animals, eating in Yom Kippur for a refuah segulis? That's a machlokas tanaim. The Mishnah and Shabbos and the Gemara talk, talks about whether you're allowed to carry certain types of talismans, a fox tooth and a, a nail of a, of a crucified person. You're allowed to carry certain mystic talismans, which were believed to be effective against certain diseases, even though, even though it's Shabbos, so you're allowed to carry them on Shabbos. So there's, so the, the, there's a lively literature in the postkim. We've discussed this in the past, whether you're allowed to, in, in a case where you'd be allowed to violate an Isser for a real refuah, for a scientific refuah, a Cholosh Yesh for example, are you allowed to violate an Isser for something which is not scientific, but is merely Segula? And that, of course, is where the question we discussed earlier comes in. How do we even define what is considered scientific and what is considered Segula? And that's a, a tremendously difficult topic. As we've discussed in the past, the, the, this discussion goes back to the Rashba. There, there was a great controversy in the Rashba's time about something called the Tzura Sa'arye, the image of the lion. There was some kind of therapeutic procedure for a certain disease which involved making an image of a lion and maybe offering incense, and that would somehow cure certain types of diseases. And the Rashba has a, a lengthy analysis of this question, assuming it's not actually a Vodazara, do we allow occult practices? Is it a question of Darchi Amari? Do we, do we uh, override Darchi Amari for the sake of Rafua? In the course of the Tshuva, he tries to figure out what, where is the line between science and the occult. Do we say anything we don't understand? The mechanism by which it works is not science. That's not true, he says. We, we, we often discover things. There's all kinds of stuff that we know is true through empirical, uh, through empirical observation that we don't understand the theory. Magnetism, the other phenomena... Just because you don't understand something doesn't mean it's not, it's not, it doesn't mean it's not uh, scientific, and that's true today as well. We, we often discover things by observation that we don't understand, and we, we figure out a theory that happens later. Some of the great drugs and medicine, medicines were discovered that way. They found uh, certain, certain things worked, and they figured out the theory later. So, it, so it's silly to say that anything we don't understand the science behind is not considered scientific, it's considered skula. On the other hand, how do we distinguish between, between things? How then do we distinguish between things which are scientific and things which are considered skula, an occult? So, of course, if you're someone who doesn't believe in the occult, then you, simply, you can simply say that anything that's real, that actually works, is science, and anything that's not science doesn't work. But if, like the Rashba, you believe in magic and you believe in the paranormal, like Chazal seemed to believe in Kishof and demons and stuff like that, it becomes a fascinating question. How do we distinguish between what is the definition of scientific and naturalistic as opposed to uh, as opposed to uh, as opposed to magic? 
you you play uh, you, you you play computer games. You play you know, the magic has been reduced to dice rolls and numbers as well. There are scientific rules that govern magic uh, as well. Maybe in the real world, not quite so rule based. But uh, so, what is the difference exactly between between science and and non science and the paranormal? So the Shemelevi grapples with this question. He he deals with uh, the, the 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 primary question he considers in his tshuva is whether homeopathy to the extent that it works, should be considered scientific or occult or uh, paranormal. And, and that, in turn, will determine whether we have the right to override prohibitions in order to implement these refuas. And an ordinary refua, certainly if it's cholashiyesh basakana, in certain cases even cholashiyem basakana, we can, we can suspend the rules for, for, for a chola, but if it's, if it's occult, then we have less of a hector, then, then the postkim are stricter about this, about using occult remedies which involve the, the violation of an Isser. Isser Daraisa, even Isser Drabanan maybe, certainly Isser Daraisa. So he says, how do we, how do we decide what's segula and what's scientific? So Rav Osner ultimately argues, he takes the very pragmatic approach, he says, the ultimate difference is not so much in the theory and the, the underlying philosophy of how it works. The underlying theory, he says, is whether... Uh, is whether it's demonstrable and whether its whether its effectiveness is clearly established. He says that's re- that, that's the real question we have to ask ourselves: Is this something which is speculative? Again, there there are many medicines which are scientific. Sci- the, the theory is scientific, but have not been sufficiently demonstrated. We we've gone through two years of COVID. There have been all kinds of treatments that have been proposed. Some of which have extensive science and extensive trials to back them up, like vaccines. Some of which uh, have been, there have been there have been some there, there have been some science behind them, but they didn't pan out in, in real world trials. Some which maybe people don't know how they work, but there have been trials that show that they are effective. So Ravosner argues that the primary de, that the primary definition of refua tivis in this context of the refua that we're willing to allow, we'll allow we're, that we're willing to use as a basis for overriding isurim, it doesn't have to be one hundred percent effective, but it has to have. It has to have solid, reliable evidence as to its efficacy. It doesn't have to be universally said. It doesn't have to cure all cholim. But he says it doesn't matter why it works. He says what matters ultimately, he, re- he repeatedly states, is hanisayon, experiment, vayilos, and the effectiveness, the efficacy of the, of the therapy. If it works, if it can be demonstrated consistently, in a statistically, he doesn't use the word statistics, but if it can be demonstrated to be effective and to be a potent remedy, not a 100% effective remedy, but a, but a significant have significant efficacy. Then it is considered, then it is considered uh, a, real, a real refua, and it has the has the halach of a real refua that is considered grounds for for overriding certain prohibitions. He says. Now Bechlal, he says you're at, even in terms of the theory. He says you're asking me if homeopathy should be considered <coughs> segula or science. He says, what's the theory that like cures like? He says, who said that's who said that's Gula? He says, maybe that's one of the Sodiateva. That's one of the mysteries, that's one of the great secrets of God's creation. We don't know, uh, we don't know exactly what's called Skula, he says, but it's it's very plausible, he says. This is not considered Skula. But certainly he says, according to what you or my Rosenberg have explained to me as to the nature of these of these remedies, the homeopathic remedies, he says, it seems to me more likely that these are considered natural, uh, natural scientific remedies. Yeah, he says, ultimately it doesn't really matter, the, the, the philosophy of it, he says, the, the, the determining factor in his view is whether they have been accepted as therapeutic uh, by experts, he says, 
and if there is Nisayon Rav, if there is Mumchim, if there are experts who agree, and if there is Nisayon Rav, if there is much, much experience, much evidence for the matter. Now, Rav, Rav, Rav Ozner is, you know, is carefully, hedging, carefully hedging, he's carefully acknowledging, he, he personally doesn't necessarily know whether, he's not taking a position on whether the homeopathic remedies are believed to be effective. Apparently this Rabbi Rosenberg gave him the impression that they were, but uh, today, of course, as I said earlier, we believe that they are not. We believe they are not effective. You can always find some marginal studies that prove anything, but the overwhelming consensus of scientists, of scientific establishments, of governments, is that the, the totality of evidence, both because both the fact that we don't have any plausible scientific mechanism by which they could work, and B, that there is no evidence. The study after study has meta-studies. The conclusion of the, the consensus of science at this point has been and has long been that they are not effective. So, Ravosner is, is working with the assumption that they may be effective. I, I don't know what he what Ravosner would have said if he had he been faced by the the, the, the modern scientific consensus. But again, Ravosner pretty much admits that the question is, what do the mumchim agree? Now, what do the mumchim agree is kind of a loaded question because the complementary medicine people say that they've been locked out of establishment science and that mainstream science is uh, is a clique and a club and they've been excluded. They, they claim to be mumchim and they believe in it. The question is, who decides who is mumchim? Who decides who the experts are? The, if you're only defining as experts those who, those who believe in the mainstream scientific consensus, at some point you risk falling into the, the no true Scotsman fallacy. No true Scotsman does X. Well, so-and-so does, well, well, so-and-so does X. Well, he's not a true Scotsman. If you're simply going to define expert as anyone who agrees with the scientific consensus, you have a circular definition, which is not so useful. So personally, I, you know, the, the people I would consider serious scientists, uh, I, I very much would agree with the scientific conclusions, the, the, the conclusions of the scientific establishment on this, that legitimate science does not have any, any, any place for such things. But, but to, to be fair, to play devil's advocate, we, we need a better definition of who are considered mumchim in this context, as we saw in some of the arguments about COVID as well, where the, you know, the, how much attention should be paid to maverick, to fringe people who, who can't get the attention of mainstream journals and mainstream governments, always an interesting question. Um, at some point, you have, to, you, you have to have a sense of just, even as a layman, you have to be able to evaluate truth and falsehood and decide what the consensus is and who should be considered an expert. And I think the answer is, is fairly clear uh, in COVID, and I think the answer is fairly clear in alternative medicine, but there are certainly many, uh, many people out there who do not agree neither about alternative medicine nor about COVID. Ravosner's final paragraph, he talks about briefly some of the cashier's questions. He says it's difficult to get into details because the actual details of, of these preparations apparently were not entirely clear. However, Ravosner says that according to what I understand, he says it's, it, it's very unlikely that we're dealing with an Isra Daraisa because things are usually going to be bottled. Certainly when it comes to other Yisurim, which are Batal Bashishim, it's, uh, even if these ingredients, the, the, the diluents, uh, even, even if they have some Yisur in them, that they've been diluted so heavily that there's not Shishim left. And even for Chametz, he says that the alcohol, it's not clear if it's, the alcohol may not be Chametz. Certainly for a Cholosh we can be lenient, he says. Certainly if, the, if we believe that there is empirical evidence for these preparations, he says, and if there's Taruvas, he says, and furthermore, he says, we can rely on a minority opinion that says that even on Pesach, we, we apply the rule of Shishim. We, we know that in general, when it comes to Pesach, we say there's no bit of Shishim. On Pesach, at least, it's Batel, uh, Chabetz, even Amashu is Aser. 
but there is an opinion that uh, Chametz is Batl Bashishim, and for a Chola, he says you can rely on that. And for a Chola Sheim Basakana, if there's definitely Shishim, you can rely on that Shita Lachatila, except for Chametz on Pesach, if there's a Maimon of Chametz, if there's an active ingredient or something which is critically important. It can be more of a more it can be more of a problem. So, so Ravosian doesn't also doesn't want to get into the details. He says he's very busy, he doesn't have time, and the facts are not so clear, so he doesn't want to go out on speculating and theorizing. But Ravosner argues that assuming again, assuming that it works, so that these are genuine refuos, there is going to be some basis for leniency, particularly for Cholim, But more facts would have to be presented as to exactly the the, the details of these preparations before we can decide whether they are us or mutter whether are we involved on Pesach or all year round. So in summary, Ramosha is reported to have said that he's opposed to homeopathy in general because it's unscientific and therefore against the will of God. Ravasher is said to have said it. Ravasher writes about other alternative medicines that they might be silly, they might be nonsense, but it's not us here to be silly. In terms of the... Other postcams seem to believe that homeopathy may actually be legitimate. If, if they are legitimate, we then have to ask ourselves, are they considered segula or science? And postcam in general, th- there is much more basis to be lenient when isurim are involved, like kashrus isurim are involved, for a scientific refua than for a segula refua, even a segula that we believe works. We, we're still not as quick to be lenient as we are for a scientific refua. Ravosner, however, argues that ultimately the question is not some kind of uh, philosophical question about the nature of science. The question is more, is there reliable experimental and experiential evidence that the refua works, and he is under the impression that homeopathy, he inclines to the view homeopathy should be called a proper scientific refua based on this, in which case we would have a, a number of, of leniencies, particularly for cholim, based on the, the, much as we do for other types of refuos, despite the fact that homeopathy is, uh, that, that is, is not entirely, it may not entirely be a scientific remedy. Ravosner himself suggested it might even be scientific from a philosophical perspective, Again, what, what Avosner says is, is rather at odds with the modern scientific consensus, which believes both in terms of the question of empirical evidence and in terms of whether it's remotely scientific. The answer to those questions are no and no, that, that the modern scientific consensus quite strongly is that there is, no, there is no empirical evidence for the efficacy of homeopathy and that there is no conceivable scientific method by which it could, they, they could operate.